0: Love Talk Radio.
1: everybody's day going? I say that like you can respond, but you cannot. Because <laughs> I can't hear you. I mean, you could respond, but you'll be talking to yourself and, I don't know, maybe you're on the bus to work or something and people start looking at you like, what the fuck? <laughs> Is this guy talking to himself? Um, so some awesome stuff to talk about. We got uh, one... Bernard Sanders going on one Joseph Rogan's podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We have a really great breakdown of how many billionaire donors each candidate has. And some of the stuff is surprising. Some of it is not surprising at all, not even a little bit. Um, Then we also have a new national poll from Reuters and Ipsos. It's a post-democratic debate poll, and, um, I think you're gonna like it. (laughs) I think you're gonna like what we found out. By the way, I got some gummy bears here. We just spoke about this on Kyle and Corn. I used to, um, I used to not be a gummy bear guy. I have totally changed my mind on that. They're actually pretty fucking delicious. Mmm. Mmm. Yummy. Imagine a CNN show starting with one of the hosts randomly eating gummy bears. How quickly would they be fired? Probably be at the end of that show immediately. Um, Also, there's a little bit of an international crisis going on at the moment with a place called Kashmir. And we have... uh, India and Pakistan have always been, like, on the brink of fucking each other up, which is scary because they're both nuclear-armed powers. But um, now we have India escalating the conflict in a way that's absolutely stunning. We'll talk about that. And then I got some compilations of Fox News, you know, their commentary on immigration, how they try to deflect the blame after this white supremacist terror attack in El Paso. There's just, I just have a lot of stories for you today, so sit back, relax. Also, the entire nation seemingly has PTSD after this most recent round of shootings. And you know what? You can't blame them. You can't bl- blame them because it is, um, it's really as bad as it gets. The mass shootings are so common that you cannot blame the American people are basically being on edge 24/7. And that's exactly what it is. They're on edge 24/7. All right, so Bernie Sanders and Joseph Rogan. Let me break this down for you. So recently we had Cornell West go on Joe Rogan's podcast and um, Joe said afterwards it was one of his favorite podcasts of all time. Um the audience loved it, and Cornell West did a brilliant job laying out a left-wing vision and philosophy without being condescending or preachy, and that's brilliant because honestly, that uh, seems to be the pitfall that a lot of lefties, uh, you know, fall into. Is that sometimes we can be very insular, and um, we can get comfortable with being like almost a fringe subculture and we go out of our way to keep lefty ideas in a little fringe subculture and we love lobbing bombs at people who are outside of that subculture. Um, Well, what Cornel West did is he made left ideas appeal to a broader audience and let everybody know this doesn't have to be a tiny subculture. We can actually have um, left ideas permeate uh, into the mainstream culture. Now, of course, when it comes to policy, it goes without saying that when you ask the American people, they actually line up a lot more with left-wing ideas than right-wing ideas. Uh, funny enough, they self-describe as moderately conservative, but then when you go issue for issue, it turns out they're actually very strongly on the left. So, um, Cornell West did a brilliant job, and as a result of Joe Rogan enjoying that conversation so much, um, he was kind of open to exploring this ideology and philosophy more. And I think Cornell West repeatedly said in that um, podcast. Oh shit! Well, that was—I almost fell out of my seat while sitting. <laughs> <laughs> Try that one out. That's that's not an easy one to achieve. Hold on, let me fix this.
0: Okay, that should be better.
1: Okay. So, Cornell West said um, multiple times in that podcast that, you know, he's campaigning with Brother Bernie. And um, I think that piqued uh, Joe Rogan's interest. So, they got together. I wonder who... Bridges that world between podcast land and Joe Rogan and and lefty politics. Hmm. Who is the perfect bridge between those two worlds that could have potentially helped set this up? Hmm. Anyway, so they got together, and they, they had an awesome podcast. The only downside, in my opinion, was that it was only an hour. I wish it was longer, but Bernie's a little bit busy trying to save the country. Um, he's out there doing town halls. He's out there... Um, protesting on the front lines with people he's uh taking on the pharmaceutical companies and the for-profit health insurance companies and wall street so he's a little bit busy so we can give him a pass but um the conversation between joe rogan and bernie sanders was wonderful i believe this is the first time that joe rogan was trending number one on youtube which by the way incredibly difficult thing to do especially because the algorithm fucks with everything So, you know, I'm sure they make it harder for somebody like Joe Rogan to trend um, because oftentimes they think he's too risque and controversial because he has on people from all over the political spectrum, um, people that we might massively disagree with, whether it's Alex Jones or Ben Shapiro or whatever, but those podcasts did really well in terms of numbers, but I think they were a little bit tampered with in terms of staying off the trending list. Funny enough, Bernie Sanders and Joe Rogan, number one. I believe it was within the course of one day, it was like 3 million views or something and still rising rapidly. And um, the thing that made me really happy is the comments. So as somebody who is a lefty, who's been on Rogan's podcast multiple times, I can tell you, I knew going in, um, it's a little harder for a lefty to get a positive reaction from the audience. And... But I succeeded. There are other lefties who've succeeded on on that front. Cornel West definitely succeeded on that front, and Bernie did too. And so he took his message to an audience that's not necessarily already in sync with his message, and he won a lot of them over. So just to give you an idea, um, these are just some of the comments that caught my eye. Brandon Avila said the following, Great conversation makes me realize how not-radical Bernie is. Which is only exactly what we've been saying, and exactly what we know is the truth. Um, Ana says the following, it's like he's a real human, using his brain, not a puppet, controlled by money. Mick Force says, he just makes sense to me, more so than any other candidate. Jason Roberts, I was on the fence on which Dem I was voting for until until I watch this video. Decision made. Thanks, Joe, for asking great questions and giving Bernie time to answer thoroughly. Frank says, this was pretty great. Learned more about Bernie from this than any other source in the past five plus years. New says, this is fucking awesome. Whether left or right, I think we can all agree on being against corrupt corporatism. Eric Bruce, I consider myself a Republican, but I actually agree with a lot of what Bernie said here. Mr. Super Mario 34, I consider myself the exact opposite of a socialist, but Bernie is onto something taxing Wall Street 0.5% for every trade. It would create a more stable stock market as well as creating more revenue for this country. Plus, we already bailed them out. So. And that goes on and on. That's just like. And that's reflective. This is the most important point here. That's reflective of the sentiment. The overarching sentiment in the comment section is, hey man, I'm not necessarily on the left, I don't necessarily think of myself as a socialist, um, but a lot of what Bernie said makes sense. And people even view it as relatively apolitical. Like when Bernie talks about ending the corruption in the system, when Bernie talks about um, how the people should have more control over their own lives, and we have to stop getting ripped off by Wall Street and Big Pharma and for-profit insurance companies and the military-industrial complex, people go, oh, well, that's not what I've been told Bernie is all about. So giving him a forum to flesh out his ideas more thoroughly, that's all that a guy like Bernie Sanders needs. Because the thing is, agree or disagree with him, You know he's honest, you know he's uncorrupted, and you know he deeply, deeply, deeply cares about these issues. So in order for people to realize just how serious he is and how much he's dedicated to fixing all these problems, all you need is a more open format. You know, it's a lot harder to get your message across when every eight seconds some overpaid asshole on cable news is trying to hit you with a gotcha question. And their whole point is to trip you up. Their whole point is to you know, misinterpret whatever you're saying in the most brazen, gross way possible and pretend like their interpretation of it is obvious. And, again, this is why Bernie – I mean, look at him in the other formats. Look at the questions he's asked during the debates. There's a reason why his moment of, of course I know, I wrote the damn bill, when he was schooling Tim Ryan on Medicare for All – there's a reason why that blew up, because it was a, an instance of, oh, my goodness, he's had enough. He's had enough with the constraints of this ridiculous format where he can't really explain exactly what the goal is and what the process is and what the policy is. He's got to do it in under a minute, and he's got to do it while fending off a bunch of lying smear merchants around him and an overpaid cable news asshole who's purposely trying to mislead people. So, you know, Joe Rogan, who's gotten a lot of criticism in the past from a lot of people for hosting right-wingers, well, he actually showed now that he tries to live up to what a lot of people pretend to believe in. So in other words, there's a lot of people out there who say, I'm all about a marketplace of ideas, bro. I'm all about having these tough conversations with fringe ideas to try to have a, a battle of ideas and the marketplace of ideas. And I'll hear out anybody, bro. A lot of people say that, and then they set up little right-wing safe spaces. On well, the case of Rogan, he's staying true to that principle in a serious way, where, yeah, he does have on plenty of right-wing figures, but he also has on myself, he also has on Abby Martin, he also has on Jimmy Dore and David Packman and Cornel West and Bernie Sanders, so on and so forth. So, and this is... and. There's another reason why this is incredibly important. It's the number one podcast in the world. (laughs) Like, just understand that. That agree or disagree with him, like it or not like it, it's the number one podcast in the world. And when you're trying to win an election, you bring your ideas everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, some people who are TFGs, as I call them, too far gone, that it doesn't matter how much sense you make and it doesn't matter how directly you appeal to them, they're still going to tell you to fuck off. Of course they exist. Of course. But your goal should be Number one, make sure your base comes out for you. Never abandon your base in politics. Rule number one. So turn out your base completely. Number two, get those independents. Number three, get the people who are relatively apolitical and they normally stay home in an election. Number four, get the people who are gettable who might describe themselves as moderately conservative or or Republicans or former two-times Obama voters who then flip to vote for Trump. So that's how you win. You build a a rock-solid coalition where you get everybody who is gettable. And certainly going on a forum like Joe Rogan's only helps in that pursuit. And the comments really prove it. They really do. Because people have this caricatured, you know, idea of who Bernie Sanders is and what he represents, and then – When he's allowed to just go and explain it, all of a sudden people go, oh, shit. Well, that makes a hell of a lot more sense than, you know, Fox News tells me all he cares about is giving people free everything all the time. And uh, he's trying to take down America and fight for open borders and whatever, you know, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever goofy straw man they have of the left. He makes clear, no, I'm for, I'm for the United States becoming a thriving social democracy, and us catching up with the rest of the developed world and improving your life. He makes that crystal clear, and uh, I, I think this was overwhelmingly positive. And this is what I love to see. I love to see left ideas um, catch on and expand, because I think I have confidence in our ideas to the point where I think if you present them in a reasonable way to people, you're going to convince a lot more people than not. So if you have faith in those ideas, then of course you should be willing to take it in all these different forums. Absolutely. No question about it. So um, what I would say to the people, because there are critics of him going on Joe Rogan's podcast at all, which is kind of amazing to me, but they are there are. There are people who exist who are like, it's a, it's a bad idea because uh, – I think he's a bad guy because he has on all these bad guys and whatever. What I would say to those people is take yes for an answer. When Bernie convinces people to agree on really important issues, it's better to say, oh, cool, you agree now, than, hey, fuck off, you were once bad and wrong, so I've now put you in a little box and tucked you neatly away with the irredeemable deplorables. And I will insist that you stay there no matter how much you evolve, no matter how much you change, no matter how much you've had sense talked into you. I mean, that's the mindset of, to come full circle and go to the original point here, that's the mindset of almost becoming comfortable with being a fringe subculture and almost getting upset when your status as a fringe subculture gets challenged and all of a sudden our ideas catch on and we become totally mainstream. You see what I'm saying? It's like you want to maintain that identity of like we're a small group of people who know the truth and everybody else doesn't know the truth and doesn't get it. But then all of a sudden when people start to get it, you're like, oh shit, well now we're no longer this fringe subculture and damn it, I want that status back because it's cool and edgy. (laughs) Believe me, I'll turn in the edginess card to get our policies implemented any day of the week. So... If you tell me, hey, Kyle, you'll be viewed as, like, really square. Who says square anymore? What a ridiculous word. (laughs) What a ridiculous context to use it. But if you tell me, hey, Kyle, you're going to be viewed as really boring and really not edgy and really mainstream, but at the end of the day we're going to get Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and we're going to end the wars, I'd be like, sign me up, man. (laughs) Call me Dorky McDorkington for all I give a shit. I don't care. Let's fix this country and the planet while we're at it. So uh, wonderful podcast. Um, Tremendous credit to Joe Rogan for having Bernie Sanders on and giving him a a fair hearing and a fair format. Shout-out to Bernie Sanders for knocking it out of the park. Shout-out to Cornel West for also doing an amazing podcast with Joe Rogan. And uh, let's keep moving forward, man, because in a weird way, I actually believe in this battle of ideas, for lack of a better phrase, lack of a better term, because that is so played out and so used by so many dumb people that it's hard to take that phrase seriously. But I actually believe in that, and I do think that in the long run, Um, we'll win with way more people than we won't. And as long as we give it our best shot in changing people's minds, at the end of the day, we can always look ourselves in the mirror and say, hey, we did our best. And that's the road that we're on right now. That's the process that we're going through, and it's a good thing. Okay, next. Okay. um, Let's talk about the billionaires. So there's an article in Forbes laying out how many billionaire donors each Democratic candidate has, and it's basically exactly as you'd expect. So take a look at this. We have Pete Buttigieg, 23 billionaires, Cory Booker, 18, Kamala Harris, 17, Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Surfer Bro, 15, Joe Biden, 13 John Hickenlooper, 11. that O'Rourke, 9. Amy Klobuchar, 8. Bernie Sanders, 0. Donut. Now, uh, even Elizabeth Warren has two, and Tulsi Gabbard has one. Um, now, I should be clear, though, that what we're talking about, at least what this article lays out, is billionaire donors who, they, they donate directly to the campaign. And for those of you who don't know, there is a personal cap, a legal limit as to how much they can get. So 2800 as of today is the legal limit. So these donors have, these billionaires have done a maxed out donation to these respective candidates. Um, now, there are other ways that they could donate. The most direct way or the, the clearest form of corruption, I would argue, is what's called a super PAC. So there, there are no limits. So a billionaire can step in and say, I'm giving to Pete Buttigieg's super PAC, and then Pete Buttigieg's super PAC can take a check of $100,000 and just start spending that money to try to get Pete Buttigieg elected. The way it works under the law is technically there's supposed to be a wall of separation between a candidate and their campaign and a super PAC that's trying to help that candidate. Now, in real life, that's not how it works. In real life, there's definitely coordination between the super PACs and the candidates. Um, But at least under the law, that was the rationale for saying, hey, there's no spending limit for super PACs. The rationale was, well, it's not corruption because you're not donating directly to the candidate, so therefore no cap applies. You can give as much as you want. And that's usually the way that billionaires influence politics or candidates um, in a way where they can kind of skirt... Around any protections, any meager protections that already exist, any rules that already exist. So, but what they're talking about in this article, to be clear, is the is donations directly to the candidates, um, directly to their campaigns. So the twenty-eight hundred dollar uh, legal maximum applies here. So, but having said that, the fascinating thing is in this article, Forbes is framing it as a positive thing, almost like like oh. Pete Buttigieg is leading the billionaire primary race. He's got 23 of them.
0: Good for him. He's doing really well, isn't he? (laughs) That's great.
1: He's really appealing to a lot of people, huh? To a lot of massive billionaires. But actually, so they frame it as a positive thing, which is incredibly gross. But also, this exactly proves a point that I've been making for a long time on this show, which is billionaires... They might be in favor of some like nominal surface level change, but they're in favor of maintaining the status quo in terms of policy because they're doing fantastically well because they're billionaires. So if you're a billionaire and you want to make it seem like you're woke and progressive and like, I'm down with the struggle, bro. I'm looking out for people. All right. That's, I, care. I care. I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person like those bad Republicans. I'm a good person. I'm a billionaire, but I'm a good person. So what kind of change are you in favor of? Well, it would be something like, would it be awesome to have our first gay president? So who's leading again in the billionaire money primary? Oh, that's right, Pete Buttigieg. So these billionaires could be like, <laughs> me, bro? I'm even more progressive than you. What are you talking about? I'm so progressive. I support the gay candidate. I'm in favor of change. Let's get a first gay president elected. That candidate's um, pretty much going to maintain the status quo when not... Raise your taxes too much and not push for a Medicare for all system and
0: <laughs>
1: whatever, bro. I'm really progressive, all right? <laughs> like, and then who's underneath that? The number one on the billionaire list Pete Buttigieg. Number two, Cory Booker. Number three, Kamala Harris. Couldn't prove my point better if you tried. So that's all like. I'm so lefty. Look at me. I support the minority candidates. Oh, they happen to be the minority candidates who will most uh, likely protect the status quo and only do tweaks around the edges? So what, bro? I support minority candidates. Do you not support minority? You support the old white guy? Well, maybe I'm more progressive than you. Couldn't prove my point better if they tried, man. But let's also just be crystal clear. This isn't a positive thing. For Forbes to brag, like, as if it's good, like oh, good for Pete Buttigieg, and bad for Bernie because he can't get a broad coalition of
0: billionaires.
1: How out of touch do you have to be? And the answer is incredibly out of touch. Now, in the case of uh, Tulsi, that one billionaire is Jack Dorsey. We've spoken about that on the podcast before, on the podcast on the on the show before. Um, I, and my theory is that Jack Dorsey basically donates to all the people who were on Joe Rogan's podcast. We'll see if that's true because now Joe's had Bernie Sanders on, and I don't think Jack Dorsey is going <laughs> to give to Bernie Sanders because I don't think Jack Dorsey wants that high of a tax rate on himself. Um, but he, Jack Dorsey had donated to, to Yang and to Tulsi, and they were on Joe Rogan's podcast. They were the only two presidential candidates on Joe Rogan's podcast, and my theory was he watched the podcast and he liked what he heard from them. So um, in terms of Elizabeth Warren, I don't know who the two specific – Um, Billionaire donors are that gave to her But hey man, if I'm Bernie Sanders I'm bragging about that zero number all day long Because we all know what that means We all know that that's the candidate It's almost true by definition That these billionaires are going to want to Protect the status quo to one extent or another Because they've done so well under this system And that Bernie Sanders is, by far and away The candidate who most wants to change the status quo so it would logically follow that he is dead last on their list. And he is zero. Zero zero, zero zero zero. So yet another way in which he's, uh, he's making us proud. But let's, let's finish on this note here, because I think this is uh, equally as important as the billionaire donor list. So there's a new national poll out from Reuters and Ipsos. Now, this is a post-debate poll. So, in other words, after people have seen and digested what happened in the debates, look at what happened. You have Joe Biden at 22%. That's a drop from where he was before. Bernie, 18%. Warren, 9%. Harris, 6%. Buttigieg, 4%. Booker, 3%. Yang, 2%. O'Rourke, 2%. Castro, 1%. Gabbard, 1%. Klobuchar, 1%. De Blasio, 1%. Ryan, 1%. So, Joe Biden dropped. Bernie Sanders gained. Bernie Sanders is now... Four points within Joe Biden nationally, and that may be in the margin of error. So, as predicted, Joe Biden, the more he talks, the more people go, oh, yeah, not him. So, he continues to drop the more he talks. Bernie continues to rise the more he talks. And now it's getting tight. Now we got a race on our hands. By the way, another poll just came out this morning. Um, Bernie leading in New Hampshire. Those early states are so important, man. Bernie knocks off Iowa. Bernie knocks off New Hampshire. Huge. Absolutely gigantic. Earth shaking. That's what that is. So we got a lot of good news coming out today. A lot of good news. No billionaire donors to Bernie. Everybody else is getting something, something. A new poll has him surging and Biden plummeting. And the closest one to Bernie is still nine points back. That's Elizabeth Warren. Knock on wood, son. But stuff is sort of shaping up just a wee bit skis here. But we got to keep our, uh, you know, we got to keep our eye on the ball. Got to run through the tape, as they say. You Got to keep on fighting because it ain't over till it's over. So knock on those doors, make those phone calls, be a donor. If you're not yet, I'm a, I'm a monthly recurring donor to Bernie. I suggest you do the same if you can. Um, because these, these chances don't come along often. They really don't. You know, all the other elections in my lifetime, it was to one extent or another, lesser of two evils. Now, maybe in 2008 we thought oh, this isn't a lesser of two evils election. I mean, Obama seems like he might be the real deal in many respects. He was very centrist in terms of how he governed. There's nothing centrist about Bernie in the context of Washington, D.C. He's a centrist in that he represents the center of American opinion, because that's what his policies are. But in terms of Washington, D.C., there ain't nothing centrist about this guy, because those centrists just agree to keep screwing you. So this is not an opportunity that comes along often. Let's take it. Okay. All right, Tim Ryan and Mike Gravel. So, Tim Ryan and Mike Ravel both dropped out of the presidential race. So, actually, you know what? That's a little bit up in the air, and I'll explain what that means more as we go along here. But first, let's take a look at Tim Ryan's announcement on it. He kind of buried it in his commentary and his reaction to these multiple massacres that happen in the U.S. He was asked a question about that, and he drops a bomb right in the middle of it.
2: Brian, you are
3: calling on Congress to cancel the August recess to address gun violence, but how realistic is that? Do you think that's going to happen?
0: Well, it's time to put public pressure on Mitch McConnell. Uh, I'm suspending my uh, campaign for the presidency. We've, I'm going to head back to Ohio, and you know we need leadership right now, and, and, and enough, enough is enough is enough is enough. I mean, you watch these videos, and, and you see Dillard's in the background, and you see Walmart in the background, or you see a church in the background, and no one feels safe anymore, and there is a bottleneck in the United States Senate with Mitch McConnell, we passed in the House of Representatives a few weeks back, the background checks, a basic step that 90% of the American people support, and the Republicans need to, quite frankly, get their shit together and stop pandering to the NRA because people are getting killed. All those people we saw, and you've been doing this all day long, they had hopes and dreams. They had plans this week. They were, they were going to do things. They were going to meet with their friends. They were going to meet with their family. They were going to go to church. Uh, And and now they're gone because in this country, we're so dysfunctional that we can't do basic things. And it's got to stop. And we have to put pressure on Mitch McConnell to start with the, the background check bill. We need an assault weapons ban. We need to study this as a public health crisis that it is. I'll just tell you quickly, I was in Nevada yesterday huge shooting in Nevada uh, how many months back at the concert. I come to Pain of Pain in South Carolina, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Now I'm going to go back to Ohio. It's Dayton. It was Chardon. You go to New England and you have Sandy Diego. I mean, this is happening everywhere.
1: Okay, so uh, put aside the obvious point that he's correct on we need to do basic gun reform. I mean, I think that's obvious, and the overwhelming majority of Americans agree when you go through those specific gun reform proposals, whether it's universal background checks or ban on high-capacity magazine or um, whatever it might be. So he's right about all that stuff. He's right about Mitch McConnell gaslighting and and blocking to protect the NRA by any means necessary. He's right about all that. But I don't know if you caught it there early on in his commentary. He said, "Uh, today I'm suspending my campaign for president. By the way, nobody covered this. (laughs) Like, he said this on TV, on MSNBC. I didn't see a single article afterwards covering it. Nothing. Nothing anywhere, which is kind of embarrassing. <laughs> you were running for president nobody even noticed, and you drop out and nobody even notices. <laughs> oh, Tulsi sends her regards. <laughs> Mr. I don't know the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Um, and Bernie does too, because he wrote the damn bill. Um, now, Sam Cedar's interpretation of what uh, Tim Ryan said here was, no, he's not dropping out of the race. He's suspending his campaign, and he might jump back in. And I, my, I have to be honest, my interpretation was not that. My interpretation was, no, he's done. He's dropping out of the race. And it's almost like, in a weird way, he kind of hoped that he could just tiptoe and back out of the race and almost pretend like he was never in it because... What a lot of people don't know is this is embarrassing to a lot of these candidates who are polling very low and haven't really sniffed a shot, is that they feel like, oh, this might hurt my electoral chances in a smaller market later on. So he's a congressman. If he's exposed on a national stage as, like, the country not really liking him, is that going to hurt his uh, efforts and his chances in a smaller market in a congressional district? It could. It could. So it might be like a slow tiptoe back and out of it, and oh, he suspended his campaign. Nobody even noticed. Nobody even said anything. Cool. I'm done here, and hopefully they never bring it up again, period. So my interpretation of I'm suspending my campaign is not, oh, I'm going to temporarily suspend it to go deal with the fallout of gun violence in my home state, but then I'll be back on the campaign trail. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to take a break and pressure Mitch McConnell and go to Washington, D.C. and try to fix this problem, and now I'll go back on the campaign trail. My interpretation of it was, I'm suspending the, the campaign, and This is my way of saying I'm donezo, but I'm trying to tiptoe my way out of here. So I don't think he's going to jump back in the race. Um, And I also don't think he really has a prayer of getting to the next debate anyway, so he knows his chances are up. Now, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. You guys tell me, do you think it's more likely that he's going to jump back in, or is he saying I'm suspending my campaign and that's his way of saying I'm dropping out, I'm donezo, and I hope this stays on the low because (laughs) maybe I save faith a little bit if it stays on the low and I'll bury it in the middle of this gun control rant. I don't know, but I lean towards he ain't jumping back in. Um, now, in the case of Mike Gravel, he dropped out. He did an official, like, dropout announcement on it. In the dropout announcement, he endorsed Bernie Sanders. Um, now, earlier on, he had endorsed Tulsi Gabbard, and so it's, it's a little unclear as to what exactly is going on there. You know, my uh, interpretation of it is that it's almost like the Gravel teens had endorsed Tulsi early on, um, and then now Mike Gravel himself is dropping out and endorsing Bernie Sanders. But there's been a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a fallout on social media and some arguments on social media about this. What exactly did Gravel mean? Um, is he still endorsing both, or as it, it's now known in in the business, uh, pulling a Rokana? <laughs> that he's endorsing both candidates Both Tulsi and Bernie um, But I think the I think his original point was He thinks Tulsi is going to drop out soon anyway So he's going to throw his support behind Bernie Sanders But until that day He'll endorse both Tulsi and Bernie I don't know I really don't care Except that uh, I think he generally has the right candidates picked And he has um, you know, A good sense of Who means well and who would do right by people? So um, I'm not mad at him. Now uh, the Gravel, the Gravel team was a little mad at me from early on because I'm skeptic, I was skeptical of what they were doing. Um, but hey, man, I, I always stood by that skepticism because I just found it strange. I I don't. I never liked it when people said I'm running and I'm not trying to win. Because then I think, well, what's the point? <laughs> why would you do something and not have that ultimate goal of winning like that should be your goal and if that's not your goal i think you're being incredibly gimmicky and i'm i don't like gimmicks because i feel like that um i feel like that cheapens the issues that you're fighting for it's almost like an admission like well obviously i can't be a serious candidate because i'm going to i'm going to push for all these lefty ideas it's like well yeah if anything the mindset should be, that's why I'm the most serious candidate, is because I'm pushing for all these lefty ideas that I think are incredibly important. So everybody knows I'm on the record. I don't like the I'm running out to win thing or, or gimmicky like, like Larry Lessig did in 2016. Oh, I'm going to try to be president, but I'm only going to address corruption, and then I'll resign, so I'm only a one-issue candidate, literally. So just vote for me, and then I'll step down after I get that done. And everybody was like, what, what? What are you doing? That doesn't even make sense. Stop it. That's so silly. So that was always my feeling towards Gravel. Now, that doesn't mean Gravel isn't an American hero. He absolutely is. Um, former senator, uh, was directly involved with the Pentagon Papers, and really a hero in many ways, and a good senator in many ways, and he's right on the issues in many ways. So I just didn't like that, uh, you know. And it was also, keep it real, it's kind of weird that the team, there were some teams that came out of nowhere that were like, oh, let's run his campaign and be a social media gurus. It's just weird. All The whole scenario is weird. But having said that, um it's a, it's a good thing that Gravel is uh, endorsing uh, Bernie Sanders, and, you know, his heart's in the right place. It's always been in the right place. You could just say, hey, Kyle, you're overly skeptical and you're a cynical bastard. Hey, fair enough, man. Um, but so we have two new candidates to drop, or at least I think. Um, the original person who dropped out was Richard Ojeda. He ran for about seven and a half minutes and dropped out. Um, and now you have Tim Ryan and Mike Ravel both dropping. Listen, I expect a lot more will be dropping very soon because the, the standards to get into the next debate are a lot harder for people to reach. So since that's the case, and since a lot of people are still at 0% or 1%, I mean, what are you going to do? You've already been on the debate stage, like Kirsten Gillibrand, for example, de Blasio even, um, Booker. Like, you've already been on the debate stage every time, and you have Dickie McGee's acts to show for it, John Delaney. Like, even if you get into the next debate, then what? Even if you get a a bump of 100%, congratulations, you're at 2% in the polls. I don't know, man. So I think we're going to see a whole bunch of dropouts coming soon. But there you have it. There's your update. Tim Ryan and Mike Ravel are no longer in the race. Okay. Now let's talk about what's happening in Kashmir, this is a really important story. So India has taken some pretty extreme steps and escalated a conflict with Pakistan. So I want to show you here a BBC clip about a region called Kashmir. and. Um, let me give you just a little bit of the backstory story before we jump into the clip. So there's an, an Indian Kashmir, and there's a Pakistani Kashmir, and the region that's technically part of India is basically semi-autonomous, and they're self-governing according to an old agreement. Well, India just decided we're going to rip up that agreement, and we're going to say you're no longer semi-autonomous, and they went as far as to crack down and declare like martial law and have this authoritarian crackdown where there's no phone, there's no internet, they shut off the power, and they basically have blocked this region from the world. So it's kind of like a brazen crackdown and just a, an attempt at total and complete occupation and domination and control. Now, this was the best picture that I could find. I don't know how well you guys could see it from there, but um, you see India, and then you see we have um, Kashmir and Jammu. Forgive me for pronouncing these like a white boy. Um, I think it's called Kashmir, like the cloth. I don't. I seriously don't know how to pronounce these properly. But anyway, you have Kashmir and Jammu, and um, you can see that there's Pakistan-administered Kashmir, so that's that's technically part of Pakistan. And then you have Indian uh, Kashmir, and basically India has said, even though we let this region be semi-autonomous in the past, well, we're taking away that now, and we're sending the military there, and we're going to crack down. So really, really, really bad situation unfolding. Now, having said all of that, Let's take a look at the clip from BBC and then we'll discuss further.
4: India's government has made a significant move to take direct control of the state of Kashmir. It will try to revoke a part of the constitution which gives India's only Muslim majority state the right to run its own affairs. Opposition parties have called this one of the darkest days for Indian democracy as the government proposed to revoke the special status enjoyed by Jammu and Kashmir. Uh Chaotic things in Parliament, as you can see, Home Minister Amit Shah making the announcement, massive protests happening there, Article 370, which gives Jammu and Kashmir more autonomy than any other Indian state, is sensitive because it is the basis on which Kashmir joined India. Let's take you straight to Yagita Lamai, who joins us now from Delhi. Uh, Yagita, just tell us more about this as a stunning development, really.
2: Well, so this is an article, a part of the Indian Constitution, and, you know, as you said, this was a promise made by India to Kashmir uh, at the time of partition, because at that time, Kashmir was a princely state. Both India and Pakistan wanted it to be a part of, uh, you know, each country, and India said to Kashmir that, you know, if if Kashmir becomes a part of India, then it will have this special status. So it's, uh, um, it's an independence over most things, except for defense. Uh, communications and external affairs. And that's essentially what has been done away with today by the government. They've moved to revoke that. Uh, you know, once the president signs it, uh, it will come into effect. And really what's being questioned and the outrage that you saw there is because many people are saying this is unconstitutional. If a part of the Constitution has to be changed, then why was it not voted on by MPs? So well, you get a uh, why is the government doing this? Well, this was one of their big election promises. It's actually been on the ruling BJP's agenda for a very long time now. But it was one of the big election promises uh, you know, in the 2019 polls that just went by. Uh, and many say, I mean, critics of the move uh, to revoke this article say that this is part of the Hindu nationalist party's plan to change the demographics of India's only Muslim majority state. What is the reaction likely to be in Kashmir itself? Well, it's very hard to get any information out of Kashmir. I mean, uh, if you see what's happened uh, in the past few days, it's really unprecedented. Uh, Internet and phone services are completely cut off, very hard to reach anyone there. Last night, major politicians in the region were placed under house arrest. In the past week, tens of thousands of extra troops have been sent there. Um, you know, a, a, a section 144 is imposed, which, which basically means that more than five people cannot gather in one place at a time. So protests, public rallies, meetings cannot be held. And with people not being able to communicate with each other, it's very hard right now to find out what the reaction is like. But it's quite clear that the government was expecting protests every time Section 370 or anything about it has come up. There have been protests in Kashmir. So, you know, you can be certain that there is anger simmering in many parts of the region, although it's not on display yet. And briefly, Agita, we've seen tension really escalating recently between India
4: and Pakistan. What reaction have we had from Islamabad about this move?
2: Well, Islamabad has condemned this move. They've called it unconstitutional. Uh, You've even seen protests, actually, uh, you know, in Pakistan-controlled Kashmir against this move. Uh, You know, and that was again a reaction that's, uh, you know, possibly expected because. Uh, these are two countries that are fighting over the region. They both say uh, they, they both stake claim to the whole of the region. So India trying to now tighten its grip over the part of Kashmir that is controlled is bound to be condemned by Pakistan. Yeah, very
4: significant, Dan, India. Yogi, thanks so much for joining us from Delhi. More on the story uh, throughout the day.
1: So um, just so everybody knows, I, I, I had to learn a lot about this yesterday before commenting on it. And I can tell you that every single news segment that I watched on this massively downvoted. And you go to the comments and you realize very quickly that there's like a concerted effort of pro-Modi trolling out there. Um, So it's, it's like a guarantee anything that's even mildly critical of what the Indian government is doing here. There's just like a whole troll army that that massively downvotes you and acts like you're being totally unreasonable and you don't understand the situation and how dare you and so on and so forth. So I just wanna let it I just wanna warn everybody in advance because um, you know, I don't know the situation. Perhaps I escape that trend, but it's very likely that this video that you're watching right now is massively downvoted and you're like, Wow, that's weird. I mean, Kyle didn't really say anything controversial or strange or I don't understand. Um, Well, now you know why, (laughs) because it's it's a trend all throughout YouTube. Anything even mildly critical of Modi and the Indian government here, it's just nonstop downvotes. So anyway, having said that, I put that aside. Um, Here's my totally banal commentary on this. If you had a situation in Kashmir, which was basically it's a semi-autonomous region and you had relative peace and stability there, why on earth would you change that? Why on earth would you do anything to move us away from that relative peace and stability? Now, I don't know. Maybe there's a very strong you know, freedom movement in Kashmir where they want to be their own independent state. I have no idea what the numbers are. And if you polled people in Kashmir, what percentage of them would say, hey, I want to be part of the state of Pakistan? And what percentage of them would say, no, I want to be part of the state of India – And what percentage of them would say, no, we want to be our own country of Kashmir? I don't know what the percentages are. I don't. I've never seen polling on it. Um, But having said all that, if the state of affairs prior to this was, it's a a segmented region, a bifurcated region, part of it's controlled by Pakistan, part of it's controlled by India, but the Indian side was semi-autonomous, and that led to relative peace and stability – there's literally no, region, no reason that's non-ideological to ruin that. So in other words, what I mean by that is this does kind of show pretty clearly that Modi is a committed Hindu nationalist. And I think the goal is to reassert control over a Muslim-majority region. And I think that there's, there are parallels here to Israel-Palestine. Many people have pointed this out. Uh, this, this, now it's starting to look a lot like the Israel-Palestine situation. What I would have said from the beginning is, hey, man, leave it be. If, the situa- if there's relative peace and stability, even though we're in this weird middle ground um, situation where it's like semi-autonomous, part of it's with India, part of it's with Pakistan, whatever it is, if there's peace and stability,
0: leave it alone. Leave it alone.
1: But Modi and his merry band of Hindu nationalists couldn't do that, and so... And here's how you know they're wrong, by the way. Here's how you know they're wrong. Why do you have to do an authoritarian crackdown if if what you're doing is you know perfectly moral and reasonable? Why do you have to cut off all electronic, uh, you know, why do you have to cut off the phone and the internet and, and the power to the region? Why do you have to do that if what you're doing is so you know welcome and so wonderful and such a positive thing? Why would you have to do that? Why would you have to? Uh, implement really draconian rules of hey, here's a curfew, and we're not allowing any of the leaders from Kashmir to go out in the street. Like why? Why would you have to do all that if what you're doing is like this, bro? Totally reasonable, totally expected. It's something they campaigned on, so it's all good. If that was the case, you wouldn't have to do like martial law and crack down and do an authoritarian, you know, and and have an authoritarian system where you take away people's freedom. You wouldn't have to do that now, would you? So, yeah, this is not good. And listen, this is one of those instances where, let's be honest, man, I don't think Trump and his merry band of neocon thugs are intelligent enough to deal with a situation like this. Also because, you know, there's a history in the United States of we just default side with our allies no matter what the hell they do. That's why we're, we sit there and And, uh, you know, pat Netanyahu on the back and and rearm him as he massacres Palestinians left and right. So we have a history of that, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Israel, and one of our top allies is India. So it's very likely that this government, this Trump government, we're just going to sit back, let Modi do whatever he wants to do, not know how to apply reasonable political pressure um, to try to ameliorate the situation, and that's terrible. So, like, the the relative peace and stability and security is threatened now because of the ambitions of an authoritarian Hindu nationalist. And our government is definitely not intelligent enough, nor do they have the will to try to fix this situation with negotiation and diplomacy and mediate it in a responsible way. Not at all. I do not trust Trump's intelligence to deal with this. And who are Trump's foreign policy advisors? John Bolton, you trust that guy? That guy would just be like, "All right, who do we invade?" <laughs> like that's gonna be his his addition like to the conversation on this is gonna be, right. but who are we gonna bomb? Like that's all he can say. That's all he knows how to do. So this is where you like really would hope for elder statesmen who can step in and and work out you know some sort of an agreement here. But I have zero faith in our government to do that, and it's really sad, and it's really embarrassing, and it's really pathetic, and uh, I think people in Kashmir are suffering as a result of it. So anyway, that's what's happening now, Um, and it only heightens tensions with Pakistan and India, and that is not good. break. When we come back, uh, Media Matters has some damning Fox News compilations that I'm going to show you. And um, we also have Joaquin Castro pulling a kind of badass move and exposing Trump's donors. So stay right there. We'll be back with that and more.
0: We're back, bitches.
1: So I, uh, I dropped. You, you see, all of you know those uh, the lights behind me that shine off that uh, white brick, the green lights behind me. So uh, earlier today, I was walking in the studio, and I accidentally knocked one of those lights off of the thing it was sitting on. And it landed on my foot. <laughs> and the, those are, they're kind of big and heavy lights. And I didn't think much of it at the time. But I just tried to do you know, walk during this break, and man, it hurts. That foot hurts, dog. Just putting a little bit of pressure on it, and I was like, ow! And isn't it the case that, like, the foot has the most, um... Like, the most bones in the body are in the feet. I definitely, definitely, like, bruised it at best, I'd say. That's what I would say. Anyway, all right, enough about my foot. (laughs) Let's get on to uh, Fox News and how loathsome they are. So Media Matters put together a compilation of Fox News and how they cover the issue of immigration, and in the wake of what happened in El Paso, it is crystal clear, this is not pretty. So let's watch, and then we'll discuss.
0: Uh, The white supremacists are American citizens. Uh, The illegal immigrants are people who shouldn't be here. Your
5: views on immigration will have zero impact and zero influence on a House dominated by Democrats who want to replace you, the American voters,
3: with newly amnestied citizens and an ever-increasing number of chain migrants
5: and I I actually hate litter, which is one of the reasons I'm so against illegal immigration. Illegal immigrants are burglars, are thieves who are there to harm your security and steal your prosperity. What's happening at the border is a flat-out invasion. We are being overwhelmed every day. As the illegal invasion at our southern border intensifies, it is an invasion. And I'm
0: going to call it an invasion, like it or not.
5: You have a group of people that are invading the U.S. border, right? And they're being uh, held in facilities. I'm not against the immigrants. I'm just Mm -hmm. for Americans, and Nobody cares about them. It's like, shut up, you're dying, we're going to replace you. If they want to sort of transform the demographics of America, even though illegals can't vote, over time illegals have children, their children are American citizens, they grow up, they can vote. Foreign citizens will be electing our political leaders. A brand new electorate from a different foreign country, that's what they want. If they keep up the flood of illegals into the country, they can eventually turn it into a flood of voters. Latin American countries are changing election outcomes here by forcing demographic change on this country at a rate that American voters consistently say they don't want. This is the Muslim Brotherhood plan. It always has been. You set up these enclaves in the West. You demand of the host country that they allow you to run your affairs according to Sharia. Our leaders are radically and permanently changing our country, wholly on the basis of their faith that diversity is, in fact, strength. And we've seen this in Europe, we're seeing it here, and they they are attempting to replace us with citizens that they think, are future citizens, that they think would be more amenable to voting for them. Their political success does not depend on good policies, but on demographic replacement. The more of these people that can be brought in illegally, as well as legally, the better it is for the Democratic Party, because their goal is to transform the United States into a facsimile of California. You have a country full of 335 million people who don't share common values. Why does that country not break apart? That's bigger than the population of 48 out of 50 states. It's enough to change this country completely and forever. Your state has been completely overrun by this uh, illegal invasion. I think calling anything but an invasion at this point is just not being honest with people. Can you be surprised? That when you change uh, a society as old as a European society, or even one as old as ours, completely through immigration in a short period of time, that some people won't like it, and there will be a
3: backlash. Any citizen of any nation should be upset and outraged when there is an invasion by foreigners into their country. People that have no respect for the rule of law. No, how How about when I was born?
5: It was fine. It was was a nice. It was a better country than it is now in a lot of ways. I simply cannot imagine that middle America, that uh, American voters accept this invasion, this open borders policy. But you're calling Which Americans racist, or the they don't like being invaded. I get it.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, we have to be honest about this. That rhetoric is almost exactly the rhetoric that was in the manifesto for the El Paso white supremacist terrorists. I mean, that's that's the truth. That's the truth. And it turns out that when you use language like that, are there going to be many conservative voters who watch it, and they just think like, uh, yeah, man, that's messed up. These, These immigrants should follow the rules. And then that's the extent of how deep they go on this. Yeah, there's going to be many conservative voters who have that reaction. But are there going to be people who watch that who then you've now started them on a path where they go down the rabbit hole, and next thing you know, they're watching Richard Spencer videos, and they're watching, you know, uh, the American Worker Party with Matthew Heimbach videos, and... All of a sudden, they believe in, like, the great replacement theory, which they touched on there. They touched on it there, the idea of, like, white genocide and, you know, the idea that, well, we, we have to keep it a majority white nation or else everything goes to shit. And that's what's happening is you have these uh, illegals, these undocumented immigrants, these brown people coming in the country and, and making this country more brown. And that's a bad thing. we have to stop it by any means necessary. Yeah, some people are going to go down that path because of the way that you discuss this topic. Now, am I saying you're not allowed to have the opinion on immigration that, hey, we can have rules. We can have a border. We can have rules. We can have a process. I'm not saying you can't have that opinion. That's not an outlandish Outlandish opinion. What I'm saying is, you cannot perpetually dehumanize immigrants and paint an inaccurate picture, because that's what it is. It's an inaccurate picture of the reality of the situation. Because I got news for you it's not an infestation, it's not an invasion. The overwhelming majority of people who come to this country through the southern border. Are good people looking to find the American dream, have a better future for their kids, work, pay the bills, live in relative peace and security? That's all they're looking to do. That's it. And a lot of these people are genuine refugees who are fleeing a situation, uh, you know, in South America. That is beyond devastating. I told you guys on the last show, um, I think it's in Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala. There's a lot of countries where the violence there is worse than the violence in Iraq at the height of the Iraq War. What would you do in a situation like that where you got kids and you're in one of these, these countries where there are mega cartels and narco gangs that run everything and your choice is extreme poverty or go work for a narco gang and would you take the option of i got to get out of here i got to get me ma- i got to try to get to the US i got to try to do something of course you'd do that cuz you care about your family so you know and also US foreign policy and the drug war spearheaded by the US all of this helped ruin many of those countries and then when people Escape to try to find a better life We chastise them and dehumanize them And call them an invasion and an infestation And it's just not true So the problem is the dehumanization The problem is not a single person on Fox News Chimes in and says, hey man, hold on now These are mostly people who are escaping Extreme poverty or death via narco-terrorists so maybe it's a perfectly rational thing to do to show up here. And, by the way, seeking asylum is not illegal. Now, don't get me wrong. Are you allowed to have a process to determine who is and isn't seeking asylum? Yes! Yes! 100%. I'm not against that. That's totally fine. But stop pretending like everybody who comes here, it's a, an invasion or an infestation, and, oh, my God, they're going uh, to ruin your life, white middle-class voter. And that's the reality, man, is that immigration rhetoric, this is divide-and-conquer stuff. This is, hey, look the other way at somebody with no money and no power and blame them for all your problems. Blame the poor immigrant for all your problems as opposed to blaming the people who rigged the system in the first place. Don't blame the multinational corporations. Don't blame Wall Street. Don't blame the military-industrial complex. Don't blame the billionaires. Don't blame the lobbyists. Don't blame the top 1% or really .01%. Don't blame them. Don't blame the owner class. Don't blame them. Don't blame the people who bought the politicians and then outsourced tremendous numbers of jobs and ruined your factory town. Don't blame them. They got on suits and ties. They've got to be respectable. They're white. You're white. You can't blame them. They're like you. And that's the trick. The trick is for all your problems, blame them. Blame the poor immigrant. It's a giant head fake, and it's divide and conquer, and a lot of people fell for it. Now, the final point I want to make is this because it's so immensely important in this conversation. Again, listen to the rhetoric. It's an infestation, it's an invasion, they're criminals, all this stuff. It's a fact that immigrants are far less likely statistically to be criminals than native-born citizens. By the way, another amazing part of this fact, because some people reply and go, well, yeah, but you're talk- the legal immigrants are less likely to be criminals. Not just the illegal immigrants. Even undocumented immigrants, statistically, commit fewer crimes than native-born Americans. By the way, that's not me saying it, and it's not some left- wing think tank. It's actually a pretty conservative think tank. The Cato Institute, they did the study, they crunched the numbers, and they found in no uncertain terms, that native-born American citizens are much more likely to commit crimes. The documented immigrants and undocumented immigrants. So the narrative of these immigrant bad is fundamentally incorrect, even according to the standards laid out by the conservatives. There's a very uh, famous conservative pundit who says, facts don't care about your feelings. Well... Here's a fact that certainly doesn't care about your feelings, and it's an inconvenient fact for the right, because it stops them from being able to scapegoat. And now, all of that rhetoric, the chickens are coming home to roost, and there's plenty of people out there who are true Kool-Aid drinkers who believe it, who go, oh my God, it's an invasion, it's an infestation. These are terrible people, they're coming to take our jobs." And let's face it, at the core of it, really is skin color. It is, it is, be honest. That's exactly why, you know, Donald Trump famously said, why do we have people coming from shithole countries? Why don't we have people coming from Sweden? So, in other words, it's like, I don't know if he said Sweden, Norway, he said one of the Scandinavian countries. And I have nothing against the Scandinavian countries. I love the Scandinavian countries. But bottom line is, in his mind, it does go back to the skin color. Because why, why would you think that, by definition, anybody who comes from Haiti or El Salvador or Mexico, by definition... They're going to be unproductive and they're going to be criminal. Why is that your default? Why do you think that? Why do you think that? Seriously, stop, stop and reflect on why do you? Th- why is that your default? So uh, it shouldn't be. That's the point. It shouldn't be your default. And you know, you can have good people and bad people of every race, religion, creed, background. And, and I feel like I, sometimes I feel silly, because I'm, I'm biased, because I grew up in, honestly, one of the most diverse environments in the country. Uh, the high school I went to was actually, like, nationally ranked for being one of the most diverse. So, I always felt, I was biased, because I was like, well, this is, I just kind of assumed everybody had a similar upbringing, where it's like, well, what do you mean? You go to school, and you see all kinds of people. So, that was the default for me. So, when I began to realize that some people were were not in an environment like that, and then also, as a result of not being in an environment like that, their default assumption was, like, the opposite of mine. Their default assumption is, like, well, what do you mean? The people who don't look like me are bad. I I was, like, flabbergasted by that. I'm, like, what? <laughs> How do you come to that conclusion? That is totally irrational. That makes no sense. But that is the default assumption for a lot of people, and there is a lot of propaganda that keeps people believing that, and in some instances, you're going to have people take it to the extreme, and you have this culture of dehumanization, and then it does lead to what we saw in El Paso in many instances, that's not saying everybody who's, you know, started down that path will end up believing, like, genocide is the answer, no, but we should talk about this issue of immigration accurately if you talk about it accurately all that, that whole right-wing fantasy goes away because you can nip it in the bud with the basic facts you know you can nip it in the bud by letting everybody know just so you know most of, most of the people who come here are coming here because our policies help destroy their countries drug war our foreign policy in South America I mean go back look what we did in the Cold War over there um, when you let people know, and we know because somebody called David Pakman Show and said it, hey, man, I was deconverted, I was a right-winger, I'm not anymore. One of the things that helped me break out of it was the segment we originally did where we covered that study, which found that immigrants commit fewer crimes than native-born Americans. So, like, once you give people the information, it is possible for many people to go, oh, wow, I was actually wrong about this. <laughs> so that, that's the good news, but we got a lot of work to do. And we understand we're up against a well-funded behemoth. And that is Fox News. And again, it is every host on Fox. Everyone seems to be dedicated to this bogus narrative, which is a dangerous narrative, which is immigrant bad. They're trying to replace you. So don't be mad when we accurately say that is white supremacist rhetoric. That is bigoted language. And that does have consequences. Okay, we're not done yet. El Paso. More on that. So Fox News has been working overtime to put the blame away from guns when it comes to mass shootings and you know terror attacks like in the case of El Paso. Um, I want you to watch this. This is amazing because it's like they all got on the same page and they all agreed deflect and discuss anything but gun reform.
2: Guns have been a part of this nation since its founding, but we've only had these frequent mass shootings in the last 20 years, so clearly there
3: is something else wrong here. There have been evil people in every single government, and this is what happens when you have someone who doesn't fear the Lord, who doesn't fear God, who doesn't, as uh, Mike Huckabee was saying, who doesn't value human life.
1: We've had yet another mass public shooting in a place where the victims weren't allowed to defend themselves. We are a culture
5: that no longer values life. Look at 44 million abortions. Why are kids getting indoctrinated with video game messages, media, and and entertainment that says that it's okay to do this? Young men are the problem. Our leaders are too cowardly to say so, but the signs are everywhere. Mass shootings are just the final manifestation of the problem. It appears he had shown the signs of mental illness quite early. Is it social media over social interaction? Is it this disconnect? Is it the breakdown of our family? Does it have something to do with entertainment choices? It's the hate
0: inside the heart. It's the loss of morality. It's that disconnecting from a God who values all people. The
5: Judeo-Christian tradition that we teach at Liberty, et etc., ha- has been crushed. We no longer teach kids in K-12 education, the first 13 years of their life, that other human beings have a soul We're a culture where, as I said yesterday, you, you go to church on Sunday and you try to bring your kids up right, but when they go to school on Monday, uh, we've kicked God out of school. We don't let them talk about these types of issues?
2: We have a youth mental health crisis likely caused by over-medication, absentee parents, and a culture that glorifies infamy and notoriety above God, family, and community. We have had
3: a breakdown in society of things that make people belong, and all of that has gotten dumped online. Leaving people feeling very isolated. And people like these individuals, you know, what are the patterns that you see here is that detachment. In a lot of these cases, these young men have no father, no father at home. Boys are marginalized in this society, you know, and, and boys are told that, uh, that they are aggressive and more likely to assault yeah. people and assault women, and it's really tough. Because, you know, we, we have to create a climate where, yes, we're honest about things, but uh, we are not othering people to the point where we force them into isolation. There's a mass
5: loneliness crisis going on here, a mass crisis of meaning, where they can do something about the video game industry. Video games, as we had the lieutenant governor of Texas on Fox & Friends yesterday, first shooter games
3: were desensitized. Folks to the violence. When we're talking to each other on social media or looking at video games where they're using, you know, uh, uh, videos of uh, of characters uh, with these uh, weapons. People
5: point out the fact that the mall and the Walmart where the shooting happened in Texas were gun-free zones where guns were banned. Mm -hmm. So people wonder, hey, this is Texas. We we would expect someone to immediately be shooting back.
3: The video games, it could be just not, I mean, not maybe. I believe you grow up. Parenting. grow up, you go to church on Sundays. That teaches you, you know, to have fear fear of God and and to have good morals. I mean, there's so many different factors you don't know. I mean, maybe a child's born with, you know, something, mental illness.
0: Yep.
1: I mean, their propaganda is so blatant. It's just right in your face. So here's the comprehensive list of things that they blamed. There's not enough guns, so there's too few guns. Um, There's 44 million abortions, video games, mental illness, social media, breakdown of the family, entertainment, so I guess TV and movies, no fathers, and God, my favorite, lack of God lack of, like, prayer in school. The thing that's so infuriating is that... I need you to think about this. The number one-ranked cable news station, which is, you know, Fox News, which is just propaganda for the Republican Party, they work so hard and they work overtime to pump out this message that it's anything but the guns, anything but the guns, anything but the guns. Even with that being the case, even with every Republican politician in the country gaslighting on this issue, it's still the case that over 90% of the American people support universal background checks. It's still the case that every major basic gun reform polls well over 50%. Isn't that incredible? Even with all of this nonstop, relentless, pervasive, persistent propaganda, even Republicans go, nah, I don't agree. No, you're wrong. Even NRA members want universal background checks with no exceptions. Did you know that? Even NRA members. So the problem, just to be clear here, the problem is that the gun makers, so the people who make money from selling guns, the gun manufacturers, they give money to the NRA, the gun lobby, and then the gun lobby gives it to Republican politicians, and there are strings attached. And the strings attached are don't change anything at all ever, period. Doesn't matter how common sense it is, doesn't matter how basic it is, because that cuts into our profits. So basically, policy is being set by the one group in the country that has a vested interest to make sure gun laws never change. Doesn't matter how many dead bodies pile up, doesn't matter how many children get slaughtered, doesn't matter how often we have mass shootings. Doesn't matter. The answer is always do nothing. But it, I really do find it incredible, and you're seeing this on other issues too now with Medicare for all. Doesn't matter how much propaganda they throw at it, it polls well over 50%. And one poll, it's 70%. Other polls, it's around 60%. But, like, it doesn't matter. All this propaganda nonstop, that common sense thing that a lot of people have, the default, is just too much. You can't override it. Because people go, yeah, no, we have 400 million guns in this country and only, what, 320 million, 340 million people. Maybe that's part of the problem as to why we have more mass shootings than any other developed country, period. Maybe that's part of it. And, again, we're not talking about anything extreme here, we're not talking about anything crazy, and we're not under any illusions that it would fully eliminate all mass shootings either, that's the other part to this. If you do a universal background check with no exceptions, if you do a ban on high capacity magazines, if you ban assault weapons, if you have regular mental health checks and testing in order for somebody to own a gun, so if you have all those things, are we going to eliminate mass shootings? No. But are we going to massively reduce the number of gun deaths? Absolutely. And it's proven because other countries that have different versions of gun reform have fewer gun deaths. So this is all, we know all this to be the case. So there's 32,000 gun deaths now. That's homicide, suicide, accidents, all different kinds of gun deaths. Is it possible to reduce that, cut it in half maybe? Sure, of course. There's about 10,000 homicides. Can we cut that to at least five by doing some basic gun reforms? Yeah, of course. But um, Fox News is not interested in solving problems. They're not interested in telling you the truth. They're interested in obfuscating. Obfuscating, deflecting, shifting blame, and um, that's what they do all day long. So That's why you get a pathetic, incredibly pathetic compilation like you just saw right there. I'm going to go through it again for you. Not enough guns, 44 million abortions, video games, mental illness, social media, breakdown of the family, entertainment, no fathers, and lack of God. All of those things are in the conversation. Not allowed in the conversation, very basic gun reform. So, Joaquin Castro got himself into trouble for outing some Trump donors. Let me show you what he tweeted here. Sad to see so many San Antonians as 2019 maximum donors to Donald Trump. The owner of Bill Miller Barbecue, owner of the Historic Pearl, realtor Phyllis Browning, etc. Their contributions are fueling a campaign of hate that labels Hispanic immigrants as invaders. Um, So, he tweeted out like a literal list. And said what their occupation is. Um, now the right picked up on this, and you know it was uh, they all needed fainting couches, and they said, "How dare you, sir?" Well, allow me to respond with this uh, very basic point: giving money to politicians and then getting favors in return—that's called corruption. If you're saying we can't know who's buying our politicians, you're saying not only am I in favor of the corruption. I'm in favor of you not even knowing who's partaking in the corruption. So you want zero transparency for a system that's functioning like a kleptocracy and an oligarchy. That is the extreme position. To say, hey, just so you know, Americans, here are the people who are buying off your politicians. That is um, a public service. So I love how what happens so often with these odious characters on the far right is they'll take non, non-debatable non things and they'll just make them debatable. <laughs> like, they'll just be like, bro, that's so impolite to bring up who's buying our politicians and corrupting the entire system. How dare you be so impolite? Fall in line. I don't give a fuck if you think I'm polite or not. Couldn't care less. What I care about is transparency. What I care about is fixing the system. What I care about is making sure people know who are the scumbags who are buying our politicians. And furthermore, if this has the benefit of almost shaming people into going, okay, yeah, I'm not gonna I don't want to get called out again, so I'm not gonna donate to our white nationalist in chief. Well, then there's definitely an upside. So I'm not at all against Joaquin Castro uh, when he did this. I think it makes perfect sense. Now he and just so we're clear, he put where they work, he didn't put the address, and by the way, most of these people who are donating if not all of them are the owners of said places. It's not like, oh my God he's trying to get them fired, because that's what uh, Tucker Carlson was implying when he covered this, and he was pretending to be outraged. No, nobody's going to get fired. These are like the owners of all those businesses. And he's letting people know, hey, if you don't support somebody who's giving money to Donald Trump, well, maybe you don't want to go to the barbecue place anymore. So that's called, you know, having more information available to people so they can make educated choices in a democracy. That's what that is. By the way, it works both ways. If you have a Republican who's calling out, George Soros for donating to a corporate Democrat, I have no problem with that. No problem with that at all. If you want to call out people who are corrupting our systems, by all, by all means, go right ahead. Because I'm against the corruption of our system. Full stop. You know, I don't want private money to bias our elections, billionaire money to bias our elections, uh, and make it so that politicians are not representing the people. This, this should be nonpartisan. So, um, but there is a little kicker at the end of this story that you guys are going to love. <laughs> Oh, you're going to love this. So here's the chaser. This is from Washington Examiner. They say, Six Trump donors, Joaquin Castro, tried to shame, also gave to him and his brother, Julian. Dude, mega facepalm for you. Because I'm not even surprised by this, just for the record. Because usually the people who know this system well, what do they do? Well, Trump told you when he ran in 2016 yeah, I donated to Hillary Clinton when she was a senator from New York because I live in New York. And if I wanted her favors, I donated to Hillary, of course. That's what all these guys do. Now, there are some hardcore ideologues who are donating just because they're ideologues, but usually the people who are doing big-dollar donations to these politicians to the point where they get into the same room with them on the cocktail circuit and rub elbows with them, these are people who, it ain't about ideology. It's about, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. So in other words, it's about corruption. So am I surprised that Joaquin Castro got donations from these people? Not at all. Not at all. But the difference between me and Joaquin Castro is I wouldn't say, oh, it's okay when they donate to you. See, he would say, oh, you should stop donating to Trump and donate to good politicians who mean well, like me. No, I would say, no, big money shouldn't be going to any politicians. What we need is public financing of elections get rid of the private money in the system, and do public finance, give elections, so we actually have a a battle of competing philosophies and policies. Because that's how it should function. That's how the country should function. Instead, what we have is a donor class, a rich elite, donating to both parties and controlling the politicians to get their bidding, and guess what these these donors want? They want more tax cuts for them, more deregulation for them, more laws in their favor and against working people. So Joaquin Castro is also guilty of partaking in this incredibly corrupt and disgusting system. Unless and until we get to the point where we have um, clean elections, until then, politicians should, should only raise in small-dollar donations, and they shouldn't be taking money from billionaires and PACs. Um, so Joaquin Castro taking money from the same goons they give to Trump is only too perfect a cherry on top for this story. Because you know, as George Carlin said, it's a big club, and you ain't in it. And what Joaquin Castro unfortunately messed up on is assuming that, you know, he's not in that club. No, you are in the club, and you're not really that principled, and you're pretty corrupt in your own right. And um, if you're going to call them out for donating to Trump, It should be a principled stand against all kinds of corruption, not just, oh, my God, Trump is bad because he's such a bigot. It should be, no, the whole way our system works is the problem. It's always okay to call out those big-money donors who are corrupting the system, but if you're guilty of it, too, what's that saying about a glass house? Let's go to um, the economic warfare that's being waged on Venezuela. Actually, I need to have some gummy bears first. I caught them out the corner of my eye.
0: And now I really want them, bitch. Mmm.
1: Yummy. So good. These are fresh, too. I got them from, like, a local deli. And I don't know how they... It says, like, the label says it's from that deli. So I don't know how they made them. I have a company that they contract with, and they just slap the label on, like it's from the deli. But they literally taste fresh. Mmm. Alright, the economic embargo. I have to try to really let you know how extreme this move really is from the Trump administration. So, the Trump administration just decided to massively escalate with Venezuela. Um, take a look at this article from The Hill. Trump expands sanctions against Venezuela into full economic embargo. So this is um, an executive order signed on Monday that freezes all assets of the Venezuelan government and bars all transactions with that government Um unless they give you a very specific exemption. Now, I just want everybody to understand how extreme this is. First and foremost, the sanctions alone are really starving the country. And I mean that literally. Um, So the sanctions alone are economic warfare. Now, to go this next step into a full economic embargo, just so you know what that entails, there's a naval blockade of the country right now. And it's been verified that the U.S. is seizing shipments of food that's going to Venezuela. We've heard nonstop for months, oh my God, Maduro is so evil, Maduro is so bad, his people are starving, he's starving his people. So on the one hand, we're screaming about, oh, we care so deeply about the Venezuelan people. They're starving. It's terrible. And on the other hand, we just seized a shipment of food going into Venezuela. It's almost like they don't really give a shit about feeding Venezuelans. It's almost like they're just trying to topple the government because they want access to Venezuelan markets. And as John Bolton admitted on Fox Business, it's not me saying it, it's him saying it, it'd be great for our corporations to get our hands on their oil. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird that the two countries that were, like, trying to topple the government as vociferously as possible, um, they happen to have a tremendous amount of oil wealth? Sure, it's just a coincidence. (laughs) Imagine being that naive that you think that's the case. So, um, and this this is the stuff that really is never covered in the hair on fire way it should be but what we're doing in uh, Iran is it's a giant war crime we have not allowed in medicine so people are dying because they don't have access to their medicine it was i believe the international criminal court which said to the US hey man i know you don't like Iran but what you got to do is not seize their shipments of medicine because that's illegal and people are dying. So what do we do? We pulled out of the court, and we scolded the court, and we continued to block shipments of medicine into Iran. Now, I want you to flip the script, and if some other country did that to us, how would we react? Let's say China or Iran decided to block all medicine coming into the U.S. Or whatever, food, whatever it might be. And let's say we didn't have the ability to to make that here, and we would ship it in, but they would block it we would flat out call that an act of war. We wouldn't even say, oh, it's economic warfare. We would just say, no, that's just flat out war. You have declared war on us. You are committing war against us. You're trying to starve our people or take away our medicine or whatever it might be, and now we're going to fight. We do that to Iran. It's called Tuesday. We do that to Venezuela. It's also called Tuesday. We just do it. We don't think twice about it. Just do it. Because the whole point is, strangle the governments, choke them off from the world, force regime change, pretend that you care about human rights and democracy as you're literally trying to control the government of another country. It's really grotesque, man. It's, it's incredibly insipid. I mean, neither, neither one of these countries, Iran or Venezuela, is going to attack us, full stop. They're not threatening to attack us. They won't attack us. So we're not acting in self-defense. I know this is so obvious to a lot of you people, but just understand that some people are maybe stumbling across this video, and they have never thought about this, and they're just learning about it now, and they might have a light bulb moment and go, oh, shit, you're right. So this narrative of, oh, the U.S., we didn't do
0: nothing wrong to anybody, Papa. We're just a good country, policemen of the world, and we mean well, Papa.
1: That's all bullshit. That's all leave it to beaver Puppies and rainbows blow smoke up your ass nonsense. So we have the thuggish government. We have the neocon, bloodthirsty government acting illegally according to international law. And um, this whole time, this president pretends he's, I'm in favor of law and order. Unless we mean international law, in which case I say, fuck that and we get to do whatever the fuck we want. So just know, man, criminal government. And the stuff we're doing is totally inexcusable. So when they turn around and blame the Venezuelan government for everything, just know our concern is not what they're pretending it is. Care so much about the Venezuelan people. I can't believe anybody actually believes that, but not only do some people believe that, fucking mainstream media hosts like CNN hosts believe all this shit. They believe like, Oh, we hate Assad because we love the Syrian people. Yeah. And they run with it as if that's true. And you're left having to come to places like this where I give you the basic facts like, oh yeah, the U.S. is blocking food from getting into Venezuela as we pretend like Maduro's so bad because he's not feeding his people. They're trying, man. See, this is what you get when John Bolton's running your foreign policy. And Donald Trump's the biggest fraud on the planet for pretending he's against war, as he did in his campaign in 2016. So, in Boston, police have announced that they're doing something called Operation Clean Sweep. Now, it started on August 2nd, and basically it's in reaction to a county corrections officer who was allegedly struck during a a fight involving a number of homeless people in a place called Methadone Mile. Um, So, the police department reacted to this and were outraged and said, okay, well, now we're just going to crack down on the entire homeless population. And so what they're doing is um, terrible. Now, we can talk a little bit about even the name of what they're attempting here. Like, the best possible interpretation of Operation Clean Sweep is, oh, we think the streets are dirty and we're going to try to clean them up, like literally, like get rid of trash or whatever. But as Adam Johnson pointed out, it could be that like that is like almost genocidal rhetoric, like Operation Clean Sweep, as in the, the homeless people are trash and we got to take out the trash. So it's very, that is very sketchy. Now, we've argued and we'll, we'll continue to argue there's a much better way to deal with the homelessness crisis, and it certainly is not to give the police carte blanche because when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, so they're going to try to handle it in a very authoritarian way, certainly not the best way to approach this, but nonetheless, that's what they're doing. And the logical result is you have police destroying wheelchairs for homeless people. So there's a a guy, I believe his name is Jared there, and he got hit by a car recently, and um, he needs that wheelchair in order to really be mobile, and um, the police threw out his wheelchair along with two other wheelchairs, Um, and they're also taking all of their belongings and just throwing them away. So a lot of these homeless people have backpacks that have all their belongings in it, and the cops are just stealing them and throwing them away. Your tax dollars. This is how they're being spent. One of the facts, which is the most hidden fact I've ever seen. I'm not saying it's on purpose. People are hiding it. People just don't know about it. But it actually saves money to put a roof over every homeless person's head. Because when homeless people are out on the street, there ends up being a bigger bill for the taxpayer because they end up in and out of the hospital, for example. Um, They end up having run-ins with police. They end up... um, Costing taxpayers money in a variety of ways. If you just put a roof over their head, it saves thousands of dollars to the taxpayers. So, knowing that that's the case, not only do you have the proper answer from a moral perspective and an ethical perspective, you also have the proper answer from a fiscal perspective. So, I can't for the life of me understand why we wouldn't have a national program that addresses this in a serious way. Furthermore, you have hundreds of thousands of homeless people. You also have about 50,000 homeless veterans on the streets, which is only like the clearest example of an out-and-out failure of the government to give a shit about very basic things. You have people who literally fought. In their mind, they think, I'm fighting for my country, for America. I'm looking out for my country. And then when they get back, their country doesn't look out for them. Not even a little bit. They're on the streets, nowhere to go. And a lot of these people have problems. There's there's drug addiction. There's mental illness. So all of this stuff needs to be addressed. All of it needs to be addressed. We should have, honestly, as part of Medicare for All, we should have mental health. We should have drug rehab. And that is part of the Medicare for All bill that Bernie Sanders is pushing. But think about how little we care about homeless people and how little the government does to actually try to improve this situation right now. To the point where this is considered action to, look to, to tackle the homelessness issue. Give police carte blanche to do whatever the hell they want, throw out their belongings, throw out their wheelchairs, um, and just basically try to, through brute force, get them off the streets. If you support that approach, just, just admit that you have fully dehumanized these people in your mind you don't even view them as people. You don't believe in civil liberties. You don't believe in constitutional rights. You fully dehumanize them and you treat them as less than human. You treat them like they're animals. Just admit that. If if this is your approach and you say, hey, man, at least the streets are clean now. By the way, nobody's not in favor of the streets being clean. The question is, what do you do to address the homelessness issue? Do you do it by putting a gun to all their heads and saying, get the fuck out of here or I murder you? Is that the right way to address it? I would hope every reasonable person goes, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Or do you address it by saying, hey, we have rehab over here, we have a mental health um, facility over here, we have, if you want a roof over your head, here's a place, a safe place for you to go at night, and, you know, there are ways to address this that are not incredibly draconian and primitive, but... We're doing a draconian and primitive thing, and cops are also bragging about it to the point where they're literally throwing out wheelchairs for injured homeless people, and they don't think twice about it. What do you do when it's the cops who are the ones that are really acting in the illegal and immoral and unjust way? I mean, the argument from a lot of people, the authoritarian perspective is no. What they do is right by definition because they're the ones with the uniform and the badge. Okay, then just be honest about what you support. You support rank, pure authoritarianism, because that's what this is. So we have another totally heartbreaking example of our broken healthcare system. Diabetic groom-to-be dies after taking cheaper insulin to pay for wedding. It doesn't get any worse than that. It really doesn't. So there was a specific kind of insulin that he took which was good for him and it literally, in order to save up so that he could afford his wedding, his doctor recommended a cheaper brand, a Costco brand of insulin, for whatever reason that particular insulin did not work with his body, and he died. We shouldn't live in a country where you have to make the choice of, is my preferred insulin that I know works, or a cheaper insulin so I could pay for my wedding. You shouldn't have to make that decision that should just be, you're sick, you get help. You need medicine, you get it. That's it. Doesn't matter. The money situation should be totally irrelevant. That should be fully funded by tax dollars. Now, just so you know, Bernie recently went to Canada with uh, diabetics and, you know, people were getting it there for significantly cheaper than they get it here. But for the For the cost of insulin pens in particular, it's amazing. Um, You want to know how much it costs in Norway? Zero dollars. Scotland, zero. Thailand, five dollars. Australia, twenty-eight dollars. Mexico, thirty-five dollars. Taiwan, forty dollars. Greece, fifty-one. Italy, sixty-one. Canada, seventy. Germany, seventy-three dollars. United States, for an insulin pen, seven hundred dollars. Make no mistake about it, this is because of the unending greed of the pharmaceutical companies. To to manufacture insulin, it costs six dollars. And going off of the numbers from last week for Bernie's trip to Canada, you they make insulin for six dollars per vial, and then I believe it cost thirty six in Canada to buy it, and in the US it was like three sixty. That's the vials. The pens, again, more expensive in the U.S., 700 for the pens in the U.S. Um, but inexcusable. Inexcusable. Just so everybody knows, this idea this, of like market fundamentalism, of like whatever, whatever the price is, it's like you know dropped from the heavens, and that is what it is. And so we can't argue against it. That's just the way economics works. Well, no. The rules are rigged in favor of big pharma to the point where whatever they say, we pay. There is no negotiation. In other developed countries, there is a negotiation. The government negotiates for better prices. Here, whatever big pharma says, we'll pay. And they price gouge the shit out of us to the point where people literally die because they can't afford their medicine. It is without without question the greed of big pharma that has led us to this place. And oftentimes for the research and development for these drugs because that's their dodge. They go, No, no, no. See, the reason we have to charge a lot because we do so much research and development to try to cure the diseases that you know this is the only way we can afford to, to do business as usual. No, a lot of the research and development is literally done funded by taxpayers at universities, and then Big Pharma swoops in, buys up the rights, and then recharges you money. So you pay for the research and development up front, and then Big Pharma buys the rights to it when they develop it. And then they price gouge you after the fact, too. See, this is the problem with corruption of money in politics. The only, way, the only reason this system is functioning as it's functioning right now is because big pharma has bought our government. Because there's no logical you know, argument for why it should be like it is right now, but it is. So we get headlines like this, and this isn't even uncommon, I'm sure. Again died because they wanted to afford their wedding so they switched to a cheaper insulin. It's time for a political revolution. It's time to fundamentally reform the system from the top down because stuff like this is unacceptable. So here's the place that we're now at in the United States when it comes to mass shootings. ABC News tweeted the following. Panic erupted in Times Square late Tuesday night after a motorcycle backfired and caused fears of a possible active shooter. The NYPD said it received multiple 911 calls about the incident. There have been no reports of injuries. So I can't show the video for copyright reasons, but it's exactly as you would expect. A car backfires, and then you see people running every which direction. And, um, you know, the person recording it, at least from the angle that I saw it from, um, seemed to know it wasn't a shooting. And he was just like, wow, this is wild. So our entire country has PTSD and is deeply traumatized. Because you know what? If I was in that situation and I was there, I probably would have reacted the same. Are you going to know up front that, oh, that was just a car backfiring? No. So what's your assumption going to be? If you hear that, you're not going to roll the dice and take any chances. Telling you, man, if you're an American, you can watch this story and go, that kind of makes sense. But if you're somebody who's not in America and you hear about this story, you're going to be like, Oh, my God. That is absolutely terrifying. Other developed countries don't deal with stuff like this. They don't. It's just a non-issue. They have stricter gun reform, and it's a non-issue. They just don't deal with it in the same numbers that we do. So their default assumption would be a car is backfiring, of course. They'd be like, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, cars backfire. Duh. For us, the default is, it's probably a mass shooter, and I need to save my life. Is anybody okay, even if you're a hardcore right-winger and you're big time against any kind of gun reform? Does this status quo seem okay to you? Do you think, like, oh, this is awesome. This is fine. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing weird about this. You know it. You know it's fucked up. And you also know that the answer is not more guns. By the way, there was an interesting story in the wake of uh, the El Paso terror attack, where there was a guy who's a former—he uh, was formerly in the military—and he has uh, he has his permit to carry, concealed carry, open carry—I don't remember what it was—but either way, he had a weapon. And uh, when the shooting happened, pulled out his gun, ran on the scene, tried to save some kids. He did successfully save some kids, so he's a hero. But um, when he had pulled out his gun, he said people thought I was one of the shooters immediately. So there's all this like mass confusion when an event like that is happening. And it's not as simple as good guy with a gun stops bad guy with a gun. That's like the simplified action movie version of the way it would unfold in an ideal scenario is okay, a horrendous a uh, guy pulled out a gun and start shooting people. Good, you know, Chuck Norris or Clint Eastwood or fucking whoever. I know those are the old school guys. Uh, they pulled out a gun and stopped him real life, there's a lot more confusion, a lot more up-in-the-air stuff. People think if you pull out the gun, you're part of the bad guys, and maybe the cops show up and shoot you, too. Uh, You know, it's just it's too much. There's too much going on. So it did not work. The good guy with the gun thing did not work in that instance. Um, So we know what the answers are. The polls show everybody knows what the answers are, at the very least to drastically reduce these shootings, but we're not doing it. We're not going to do it because the NRA bought the Republican Party and they block all change on this issue. The NRA is bought and owned by the gun manufacturers to the point where they're not even representing, the NRA is not even representing their membership because a majority of their membership supports universal background check. This is my city, dude. In my city, this shit is happening. And I said it in the wake of the shootings in the original segment, but... The thought that keeps getting me is we know as a matter of fact that within the next six months, somebody's out there right now living their life, you know, whatever, picking up their daughter from ballet class and going to the store, pick up some milk, whatever it might be. There are people out there living a life right now. And those people are going to be dead within the next six months from a mass shooter, guaranteed. I'm doing six months to be on the safe side. I could say two months, and that's probably true but I'm going six. There's some people out there who will die in a mass shooting. Is it going to be somebody you know? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again for sure. And we'll go right back into this dumbass tap dance that we always go into when one of these things happens. Where the right blames We just did a segment on it. Let me pull it up here. The right will blame. Not enough guns, 44 million abortions, video games, mental illness, social media, breakdown of the family, entertainment, no fathers, and God. They'll go right back to blaming that. And uh, Democrats will say, hey, we should probably do something about the guns. But uh, they will fight so ineffectually that nothing changes. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the final story of the day. I have a senior Trump advisor commenting on the 2020 election. So, One of the senior advisors to Donald Trump, and also his family member, predicted a landslide victory on Fox News, a landslide victory for 2020, and um, this really shows a deep disconnect from reality.
3: I think people are going to be very surprised in 2020 about uh, the numbers when it comes to this president. More, I think, minorities are going to vote for this president. More women are going to vote for this president than did in 2016. Uh, We think it's going to be a landslide victory, Um, and and I, I really do have a strong feeling that so the media is going to miss it again, but that's okay. They can what keep What you the now? I remember you saying to me early on, you know, you can just sit back and grab the popcorn and watch the debates <laughs> and, like, laugh because they're basically going to blow themselves up. Is yeah. that what you're seeing? I mean, I think anyone who's watched these debates is uh, – it's pretty clear. I mean, the, the ideas that are being proposed, if you contrast them with the success that you've seen under this president. And his administration. You've seen economic success that has been unparalleled in the history of this country in many aspects, the lowest unemployment we've ever seen in this country for many folks. Uh, contrast that with the Democrats who want full government control of everything. They want open borders. They want to abolish ICE um, and a- anti-law enforcement. It's a very clear choice, I think, when you break it down. Do you want to continue the success that we've seen over, over the past two and a half years under this president? Or do you want to change and, you know what, Trish, if you decide you don't want to go to work tomorrow, I'll subsidize your life. I'll go ahead and, uh, and pay for you. That is not how America is built. This president has always believed in bringing back the American dream. It's happening for people right now, and I think people are going to want to see that continue. They're getting
1: overconfident. They're absolutely getting overconfident. You know, there were many reports behind the scenes in 2016 that it was the opposite. And they really thought going into election day they weren't going to win. Um, Again, that's not me saying it. There are a lot of reports from people around them. And, of course, the Hillary team was the exact opposite. They were overconfident. And um, when the results kept rolling in, they were surprised. And so as a result of winning the last election, now the conventional wisdom has become he's totally undefeatable. You can't beat him. He's, uh, he's Teflon Don. Not only can they not bring him down with Mueller and all these other things, but um, you just can't beat him in an election. So that's now the conventional wisdom. And I've seen a thousand articles that are hilariously giving Democrats the exact wrong advice. They keep telling them, oh, pfft, come on, man. If we go with the moderate, Trump will definitely lose. But if we go with the far lefty, oh, my God, then you're guaranteeing another four years of Trump. And, of course, they get it exactly wrong. But the Trump team, on their own, are now overconfident. It's not just you know the rest of the D.C. bubble who thinks you can't beat them. Um, so look at the arguments that she made, or the lack thereof. She's bringing up oh, economic successes unparalleled. By the way, she did this on a day where uh, the market had the biggest plunge it's had in years. The market absolutely tanked over the past few days. Now, is this the big crash? I don't know. I don't know if it's the big one, but I can tell you this. There is a big one coming, and I've been warning you about it for years now because our economy is just a house of cards. Now, a lot of what happened is tied to um, basically not only is there a little bit of a trade war going on with China, but now there's also... Um, an issue with currency manipulation where they devalued their currency and that led to panic in the markets and there was a giant plummet in the markets. I think they lost, the market lost 3% back-to-back days. Giant plunge. So it's just hilarious that on the day that the the thing that Trump uses as his main argument for his economic success, on the day she's bragging about that, it's tanking. (laughs) So massively overconfident, the idea that, oh, the American dream is back and we have economic success. How many times have I given you guys the numbers? I've told you so much that you could recite them without me even being here. 76% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. Half of American workers making $30,000 a year or less. 93,000 jobs outsourced under the Trump administration. Wages still stagnant. So productivity is through the roof, but the wages are stagnant. Tremendous numbers of people underemployed. So they like to bring up a low unemployment numbers. But people are underemployed. So they're t- it's the gig economy. So, oh, yeah, I'll get this job. I have a degree, but the degree is now fucking useless. I'll go drive an Uber and whatever happens, happens. And they're bragging about this, man. And it's ridiculous. We know that people aren't still in this anti-establishment, anti-corruption mood. And... People are looking for somebody who's willing to come in there and make serious changes. And Donald Trump and his team are overconfident thinking they're going to win to the point where they're now going with keep America great as the 2020 slogan. They were debating it previously. Now they seem to have settled on keep America great, or at least Trump himself has in his rallies. If you go with keep America great, well, good luck to you. (laughs) Because people are going to go, wait, what? What? It didn't – but I didn't – Nothing changed for me. What do you mean, keep it great? You said you're going to fix everything, but nothing changed for me. So look out. They are getting overconfident. And her explanation of the Democrats' viewpoint, it's like they they take the most caricatured version of their opponents and they just run with it. They want full government control of everything. What? (laughs) Nobody ever said that on the left. Ever. No politician on the left, nobody running said, I'm running on full government control of everything. The few things that they're saying should be rights and should be off the table are only the same things that every other developed nation has concluded, oh, those are the things that should be rights and should be off the table. It's just beat that straw man day in and day out. Um, And then we get the classic, they support open borders except none of them have said anything about open borders. None of them. Yet again, the furthest anybody has gone is uh, is, uh, Julian Castro saying, we should change border crossings, illegal border crossings, from a misdemeanor, which is what it is now, to a civil offense. So that means it's still illegal, but it's in a slightly lower category because they want to stop the family separations. Now, mind you, Family separations also are opposed by Donald Trump. He says he's against them. So along comes Julian Castro saying, okay, let's make that happen. Here's how we do that. And all of a sudden you're like, open borders. You're in favor of open borders. But they're not. Nobody said that. You just said that. So they don't – see, this is the thing, man. And this is why they're in trouble. When you're arguing against Hillary Clinton in a debate, okay – that's pretty easy, because what did Trump do? Exactly what he did. Oh, my God, she's corrupt. Oh, my God, release the Goldman Sachs transcripts. Um, oh, my God, why were you supportive of NAFTA? Why did your husband pass NAFTA? And just go down a list, hit her on it. Oh, my God, you of the Iraq War. Oh, my God, it's so easy. You hit her over and, over and over and over and over, and it worked. What are you going to do when you're up against Bernie Sanders? What are you
0: going to do? need to support Trump and borders.
1: No, I don't. I called it a Koch Brothers proposal years back, and I still believe that to this day. Venezuela? No. Sweden. Norway. You want to make everything free? No, I just want to make healthcare and college free because other developed countries have done that, and it massively, massively helps people. Why don't you want to make those free? Those are common sense. Venezuela again They got nothing And the, my other favorite lazy talk about Open borders they go with But then the other one is Anti-law enforcement <laughs> Imagine that was like written in as a plank On, on Bernie's website It just says like that, There's like Medicare for all And then there's an explanation and It says Anti-law enforcement <laughs> And it says like Fuck the police bro Fuck all law enforcement up in this bitch this is what I mean. If you are so intent on just telling your opponent what they believe and then slapping that down, you're going to get shredded when they're actually in front of you. And that's what's going to happen. And they're overconfident. I'm telling you they're overconfident. And the final thing is, you know they have nothing when they go to, they, they want to just have people sit on the couch and just have them subsidized all day. Again, nobody ever said that, ever, at all. Nobody said that. Nobody said, do absolutely nothing all the time and we'll pay for you. They argue based off, of, based off of the dumb old stereotypes of what a lefty is. Like, oh, you're anti all forms of work or something. Literally, some lefties are pushing for a job guarantee. That is the exact opposite of sit on the couch all day and do nothing and we'll subsidize you and you're the ones who are not in favor of a job guarantee. Now by the way, I actually think that's a debatable policy, but it's just hilarious that some people on the left push for a job guarantee and the people on the right are like, you're anti-work. And that's proven because you want to give everybody a job. You got to you got to sharpen your propaganda here, Laura. Lara, Laura, Laura, Laura. La la la. I don't know how the fuck to say your name and I don't care. You're irrelevant, but you gotta sharpen your propaganda because it's embarrassingly stupid, and I think on some level you know that, which is why you have to do your silly like women for Trump is wonderful. See, we have women who support Trump. Wow, that's so uh so inspiring, so special for you to spew bullshit about the other side and pretend like it's serious, okay. All right, guys, we're out of time, out of show. All right, I love you guys. I will see you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Peace.